Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. So we are, last week we started Revelation and we started chapter one. Uh, We're diving into chapter two this morning, which if you remember the divine outline, uh, the, the book of Revelation is the only book of the Bible that has an outline that the Lord gives us for it. It, he tells us in chapter one, verse 19, write the things which thou hast seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. And last week we covered the things which thou hast seen, which was the unveiling of Jesus and who he is really as our King and Savior. Uh, this week in chapters two and three, these are the things which are. Uh, it's the seven churches, the seven letters to the seven churches. These are the things which are. And so we're getting to that second part of the outline in the book today, starting in chapter two. And I'm just going to open up. We're going to study the first seven verses of chapter two this morning of Revelation. It's the church. It's the letter to the church at Ephesus. So I'm going to just open before we dive into the slides. I'm going to open up and just read the seven verses, give you a feeling of what we're studying this morning. And then we'll we'll unpack this and go pretty deep here. So under the angel of the church of Ephesus, write these things, saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand. Who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience. And how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not. And hast found them liars. And hast borne and hast patience. And for my name's sake hast labored and has not fainted. Nevertheless I have somewhat against thee. Because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come into thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of this place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Okay, so that's the the letter to Ephesus. The seven letters to the seven churches. These are the things which are in the divine outline. And so chapters two and three of the entire book of Revelation are the most important chapters of the book for us as the bride of Christ. It's the seven churches. It's the things which have, have existed from Acts two until today, until the modern day where we are as the founding of the church. And so these seven churches... We talked about this a little bit last time, but they are seven churches that were on a Roman mill route in modern day Turkey, or in ancient times, it was Asia Minor. It's proconsular Asia as the Roman Empire ruled the world. The letter to Ephesus is the closest church to the island of Patmos. You can see on the screen there, Patmos is about 45 miles off the coast of Turkey. You can see Ephesus is number one, and it just kind of goes around clockwise 
is the order in which Jesus wrote these seven letters to these seven churches. And it follows a, an ancient Roman mail route, but that order has a deeper application. And something I want you to think about as we're diving into this is why would Jesus choose those seven churches specifically? You've got Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. And why those seven? You, know, you can read the entire New Testament and you hear nothing about most of those churches. You've got a lot about Antioch, Philippi, Jerusalem, Rome, you know, all these other churches throughout the New Testament. So why did Jesus choose those seven? We're going to get into that a little bit throughout this study. But the seven letters have very, very significant points in each of the letter. The name of the church has an application and it relates to the purpose of the letter. Jesus uses also one of his titles from chapter one in each of the seven letters. And so literally when you get, when you see that he's taking a, a piece of himself and applied it to each of the seven letters. And it, so it literally makes up the body of Christ, those seven letters. So each of the letters has four levels of application that we'll look at as we go through. We're going to take one per week. And so today we'll do Ephesus, but each one has four levels of application. And the, there really was a local church with that name at that time that was facing those real problems. So Ephesus had some issues. It also applies to every church. So if you, if you remember the closing phrase of the letter, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says, to the churches. So that letter applies to every church in that day and today. It also has a personal application. You know, it closes with he that hath an ear. So it has a personal, a local, really to that congregation, that fellowship, and then an application to all churches. Okay, so those are the three kind of, you can kind of easily grab those out. The fourth level of application is something that we, in 2021, get the benefit of looking backwards. And there's no way you would have known this for the past 2,000 years until say the last hundred years or so but in the order that the letters were written they jesus actually laid out the history of the bride of christ in advance so each of those letters profiles a time a, a period of time that his church went through in the order of which they're written that period of time lays out the entire history of church in advance and it's amazing, you can't get that until you're where we are today, looking backwards. There's no way you knew that in 95 AD when this was written. There's no way you knew that in 200 AD. But we have the benefit as the Bride of Christ now, almost 2,000 years later, to look backwards and to see that. And why Jesus specifically chose those seven churches. Because it lays out his bride in advance for the entire history of the church. And so at the end of this study, oops, sorry, there we go. At the end of this study, we'll, we will look at that looking backwards. When we get past the seventh letter, we'll look backwards at all of them, how they lay out from Acts 2, from Pentecost, when the church was formed, all the way to where we are today. So each of the seven letters has seven elements to it, which is, go figure, we talked about all the sevens in Revelation. You can't make an exhaustive list of them. It's probably impossible, but each letter has seven applications. There's the name of the church. There's the title that Jesus chooses to use of himself in that letter. 
There's a commendation, you know, something that church was doing well. There's a concern, something that church was not doing well. There's an exhortation or an appeal or counsel from the Lord to that church on something to improve on. There's a promise to the overcomer, which is us as the bride of Christ. And then there's a closing phrase, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. So there's seven elements. So at the end of this study, as we go through these seven letters, we'll fill out this table. And I think it will really help you because some churches had nothing good said about them. Some churches had nothing bad said about them. You know, some churches, Jesus is imploring, hey, hang in there. You're doing great. And we want to understand that. Why is Jesus so pleased with certain bodies of Christ and not with others? Okay. As we walk through each of the seven letters, also pay attention to where Jesus writes the promise to the overcomer. Okay, that promise is a, is a part of the rewards we have for faithful service unto our king. So where does he write it? And some of them he will write it almost as a postscript, like a PS to the letter. You'll have the closing phrase, he that happened here, let him hear. And then it'll be to the overcomer, I will you know, after that. And that's, and that's what we have with the letter to Ephesus. That promise is at the end of verse seven, not at the beginning. And so structurally, you'll notice there's a difference. Some of them have that promise in the body of the letter and some of them it's a postscript. And you might just think, well, why does that matter? Well, it has some pretty deep application that we'll look at also at the end of this study as to why would Jesus have it as a postscript versus in the body. Okay, so each letter does have a promise to the overcomer. So who is the overcomer? We've talked about that before. 1 John 5, 4. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. Okay, so if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you are an overcomer, according to the Bible. You are a child of the King. And you have a reward waiting for you for faithful service, which is really vital. It's very important to, to keep that in mind in everything you do. Sorry, there's a delay on this clicker for some reason. There we go. Okay, application. Application to all churches. So these seven letters, Ephesus is imploring us to have devotion, not just doctrine. And we'll look at that and break that down in a minute. Smyrna is to endure persecution. They represented the persecuted church. Pergamos is to stand fast against the world. Pergamos represented the married church, the church that marries the world through compromise. So Satan tried to, to weed out the church through persecution, and all he found out was that it kept growing and getting stronger. And so he changed his tactic to get the church to marry the world through compromise. That's what we see in Pergamos. Thyatira is abandoning pagan practices. Sardis is a watchfulness and diligence. Philadelphia represents the missionary church. Okay, and you'll notice when we get to Philadelphia in a few weeks, it has nothing bad said about it. It was the missionary church. Laodicea is beware of prosperous compromise. And Jesus tells them, you think you are rich, but you have, you are in need of nothing, but you are wretched, poor, naked, and goes through this list. Okay, applications to us per personally. Ephesus, keep the priorities in line. Smyrna withstand satanic opposition. Pergamos avoid worldly compromise. Thyatira flee pagan practices. Sardis stand watchful and diligent. Philadelphia be a loyal ambassador, the missionary church. And again, the, in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not take the Lord's 
name in vain has nothing to do with your vocabulary. It's about being a loyal ambassador to the king. So when you take his name, don't take it in vain. Don't take it and squander it and bury it and do nothing with it. So you've got to actually go out and use his name and be a loyal ambassador for the king. Take his name in vain. Take it with purpose. So Laodicea, repent and commit. Okay, the seven letters line up also strikingly to the seven kingdom parables in Matthew 13. Jesus gives seven parables in Matthew 13 that are the kingdom parables. And at the end of the study, we're going to look back and break down each of those on how they line up perfectly as well. But what I'm trying to give you a feeling for is the structure and how integrated this, this Bible really is. How Jesus has orchestrated it to be a message system for us that all links together. And so the seven kingdom parables in Matthew 13, 35, you get a hint of this. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. And that's what he's telling you he's doing in those seven parables. So what has been kept secret from the foundation of the world? Well, in Ephesians 3, it's the church. You know, Paul had that great privilege through the Holy Spirit to reveal the church, the new relationship we had with the Lord. And he says in Ephesians 3, I'm just skipping down a few verses, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. When you go further down, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God. So this is something he's revealing something that from the beginning of time was hidden to the intent that now under the principalities and powers, those are different ranks of angels in the Greek in heavenly places might be known by the church, the manifold wisdom of God by the church. So he's revealing this new relationship of the indwelling Holy Spirit that we enjoy as a believer, as the church, all of the old Testament people that followed the Lord did not have that privilege. You know, that's why David cried out to God, take thy spirit not from me. The Holy Spirit would come and go all through the Old Testament. But we as the church have a new relationship. We are kings and priests to Jesus. And we have his Holy Spirit, the comforter, literally indwelling us continually. So they line up with the seven kingdom parables. Ephesus is the sower in four soils. Smyrna, the tares and the wheat. Pergamus, the mustard seed. Thyatira, the woman and the leaven. Sardis, the treasure in the field, Philadelphia, the pearl of great price, and Laodicea, the dragnet. And we'll look at those at the end of the seven letters, too, how those line up and really break that down. Okay, if, you, if you're familiar with a lot of the writings the Holy Spirit did through Paul, you know, Paul wrote a lot of letters in the New Testament, a lot to churches, a lot to pastors. Well, if you remove the ones that he wrote to pastors and you combine the ones that he wrote to churches, you realize Paul also wrote seven churches which is amazing. And so Jesus writes seven churches. Jesus wrote seven other, the same seven churches in, in spirit through Paul. Ephesus obviously is Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, Smyrna, Philippians, Pergamos, Corinthians, Thyatira, Galatians, Sardis as Romans, Philadelphia, Thessalonians, and Laodicea, Colossians. And so when you really break down those books and look at what problems were were those churches facing that God was trying to address? 
they line up perfectly with the succinctness that Jesus writes in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. These little succinct 7 and 9 verse letters to the churches. Which is pretty amazing. Sorry, I don't know why there is a delay on this. Okay. Okay, from a historical perspective. The church of Ephesus, it was founded by Aquila and his wife Priscilla, who were from Athens in Greek. In Greece, I should say. Uh, Paul takes them from Athens to Ephesus in Acts 18. You can read about that through the first 19 verses. Paul brings them to Ephesus. And so there's a lot of Grecian culture that gets established at Ephesus in this church. Okay, and Paul then pastors the church for three years in Acts 19, and he then hands it over to Timothy in 1 Timothy, and that's the first couple of verses, which that probably happened around 62 to 63 AD, is when he hands that off to Timothy, and then Paul leaves and departs. It's located in the Roman province of Asia Minor. At the time, in ancient, in ancient culture, it was called the Queen of Asia, and it was 35 miles from Smyrna. It's located opposite the island of Samos in the Aegean Sea there, off the coast of Turkey. It's the closest of Revelation's seven churches. It was the capital of both Ionia and Proconsular Asia in its day. The advantageous location of Ephesus made it the chief city of Asia Minor. So it was a, it was a very prosperous, large city in the ancient world. Okay, it maintained an artificial harbor accessible to large ships. And so it was one of the easiest cities to get, get to in that day. You could get to it by highway or by ship. And it was connected via lots of highways into what we would call Turkey today and to other important cities in the region. So the ease of traveling there made it the most accessible populated destination in modern time, in that ancient world in uh, Proconsular Asia. The city had a plethora of the most eloquent orators and speakers in the world. So people traveled there that were highly educated. They stayed there. They did a lot of writing there. The, the library at that time probably had somewhere around two to 250,000 volumes. Okay, just think about that. that was before the printing press. People would sit and just write. And so it was a very highly educated city. And yet the pagan practices portrayed in the city were just despicable to God. It was world famous for its large temple to the pagan goddess Diana. And if you're familiar in the New Testament, there's the Greek word Artemis. That's the, that's the Greek word Artemis is uh, Diana. So it's the same, the same false god, the same idol that they worshipped. So the city was known for building the largest outdoor theater in the world. It set somewhere around 50,000 people at the time. And I've got a couple of pictures just to give you an idea of what they were seeing. And for many years, Ephesus was the largest city in the Roman Empire next to Rome itself. So it boasted a population of more than a quarter million people. So on the screen here, the picture on the left is just a rendering of what that, that pagan temple probably looked like at the time. It was all types of false goddess pagan worship practices happened in that temple. And so just think about, you have these believers in this church in Ephesus, and they're surrounded by false pagan idolatry worship of a goddess and fertility rites and all these kinds of disgusting pagan practices. On the right is a picture of the library, the Celsus Library. 
Okay, here's a picture kind of zoomed out. You can see the library on the left, kind of right there, the ruins of it, the amphitheater on the right, of what it looks like from the air. So the ruins of that theater from back then. Okay, let's break down the letter. So the name Ephesus means desirable or desired one or darling. Okay, so Jesus is telling them, you're my darling, my desired one. Okay, and it's important to this to the letter itself because we're going to find out that they lost their first love. They didn't hold on to Jesus as their desired one. So Revelation 2.1, unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, these things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks or lampstands. So if you remember from last week in chapter one, those seven lampstands are right there in the midst of Jesus on earth. And we're going to see in chapter four, when we get there in a few weeks, those lampstands are in heaven with Jesus when he takes his bride home in the rapture. So it's just another subtle hint of us leaving and going home before the wrath of God breaks loose in chapter six. Okay, the title of Jesus. So he uses the title. These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. So there's the title of Jesus that he chooses to use. Okay, in verses two and three, the commendation. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how that thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not. And hast found them liars and hast borne and hast patience. And for my name's sake hast labored and has not fainted. You know, so look at the, the commendations in verses two and three. Surprise, there are seven of them. You know, again, it's just that structure of the letter that their sevens just are everywhere. They've got seven things they're doing well. And the opening one, I know thy works, God has the same thing to say about us in our lives. That he knows our works. He knows what we're going through. He knows what we're laboring for. He knows what we are putting our resources, our time, our effort, our energy into, and whether it's for the kingdom or not. You know, that's the bottom line. And that's the only thing at the end of the day that matters. What, what you did in your life, was it for the spirit or for the flesh? That's it. And we looked at that in, in Inheritance and Rewards a few weeks back, that 1 Corinthians 3. Everything you do in your life will either be wood, hay, stubble, and burnt up or gold, silver, precious stones and a reward for you to present to the king once you get in the throne room. You know, that's the bottom line. So he knows our works. Okay, throughout the whole New Testament, there's some pleas about these very issues about false apostles, uh, wolves coming into the congregation, trying those who say they're apostles and finding them liars. You know, it's all over the New Testament. Acts 20, 2 Corinthians 11, 1 Thessalonians 5. 1 John 4, 2 John 1, you can track all of those down. But it's all over this, this plea from the Lord to please test the congregation, test the body. Don't let someone that's a liar, a false apostle, get into the body and corrupt the body. You know, that's the point. We're to try them. We're to try them. Okay, thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and hast found them liars. That's the fifth good thing, the fifth commendation that Jesus has for this church at Ephesus. So when you go back to Acts 20, 29 through 32, 
The Holy Spirit says this to Ephesus, for I know this, that after my departing, this is Paul speaking, but that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, watch and remember that by the space of three years, I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. Okay, so the Holy Spirit warned this church through Paul that when he departed, grievous wolves would come into their congregation in Ephesus. And that also some of their own selves would rise up speaking perverse things. So not just those from the outside, but those from within the body would rise up and try to corrupt the body. Okay, well, they held fast to that concern because here in Revelation 2, Jesus says, that thou cannot bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. So they took Jesus at his word back in Acts, and they took that serious, and you see, fast forward 60, 70 years, and here they are doing that thing well. We'll ask a question, where is the bill of thy divorce? You know, I didn't give you up, why are you giving me up? Is his cry continually to his people? So back to the concern, Revelation 2, 4. I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. The first love. So they were to be the bride of Christ and have Christ as their first love. And yet they turned and abandoned Jesus. You know, they turned and gave him up. And so their first love, this word in the Greek first is protos. It literally means first in rank, influence, influence honor, or foremost of importance. And so it's first, Jesus wants to be first on your list and your only thing on the list. He doesn't want to be number one in a list of 20. He wants to be number one on a list of one and everything else takes care of itself after that. So they left their first love. You know, just imagine that pain of your bride, your spouse leaving you and forsaking the covenant that they vowed between God, you and God. You know, that's the concern. Okay, the exhortation or counsel, verses five and six. This is what Jesus is telling them to please. He's exhorting them, please do this. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works or else I will come unto thee quickly. I will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Okay, so he's pleading with them. Turn back, repent, and turn back toward me. Okay, this is, this is important to understand this concept. Repenting does not get you saved. Repenting is an action you do after you are saved. Okay, Romans 10, 9, right? Whoever confesses that the Lord Jesus is Lord will be saved, confesses with their mouth, will be saved. It's after you get saved, you have the power to repent. Then you have the strength of the Holy Spirit to overcome sin in your life and to turn to God. So he's telling them, use the gift I've given you, the Holy Spirit, turn back to me, turn back to Jesus, repent and turn back to me. Repenting literally means to turn away from, you know, and all through the Bible, Jesus and the Lord, God and Jesus, both throughout the Old Testament, will say, um, I've repented from such and such. You know, he'll cast a judgment, for example, on Nineveh or some other city for their dire works. 
and he'll repent from it. Obviously, God is not repenting from his sin. He's just, it just means to turn away from. He turned away from what he called, he was saying he was going to do. Okay, so it's important. He's, he's calling them, return to your first love, which is Jesus. Now, Ephesus clearly did not heed that advice. Because how many of you have ever attended a service at the church of Ephesus? You know, nobody, right? It's not there anymore. <laughs> it's gone. So Jesus took their lampstand and removed it because they were, they continued to forget their first love. They were turning toward pagan idolatry and he removed them as a church. He took care of that problem within the body. Okay, so at this point, the church hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Okay, look at the last part of verse six. Thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Okay, the Nicolaitans, who were they? What we're going to see is he, Jesus hates their deeds in the first letter of the seven churches. Later on, he hates their doctrine. So what happened was the Nicolaitans invaded the church and their deeds, their works, their pagan practices infiltrated the church enough that it later became doctrine to the church. And Jesus will later say, I hate the doctrine of them because Ephesus did not root them out to begin with. He did not, they did not uproot those pagan idolatry worshiping false liars and get them out of the church. So Nikeo literally means to conquer or to rule. Okay, is what it literally means, to conquer or to rule. The laity means people or clergy, you know, the body of Christ. Think of it as what they're doing is the people rule, the church ruling over the people. You know, think of it as they're conquering the people. So they're setting up clergy, org charts, having people rule over subgroups, you know, keeping the word of God out of the hands of the people. You know, you see that a lot later on through the history of the church where only one person could have this and then he would tell everyone else what it said. You know, that's not what Jesus intended at all. You are to search the scriptures daily yourself and find out what it says. So think of the contrast of Jesus when we see him in John 13. You know, what does Jesus do? He comes to his disciples and he washes their feet. You know, that's the org chart that Jesus established in the church is that the most, the highest one of the church will serve the least amongst them. It's not to be the other way around. You know, the church is to be a serving body to the people, not a big giant organizational structure where you try to grab power over the people. And so that's what they were doing. They, Jesus is saying, you hate the Nicolaitans. I also hate them. And so he's. He's, he's praising them for that. Okay, we are to love the Lord first and foremost, and everything else falls into place. You know, when you go to Deuteronomy 6.5, the Jewish culture calls this the Shema. Okay, they'll have this rolled up in a little scroll in their homes in a, in a, by their door, and they'll read it. Certain times of the year, it's the Shema. It's Deuteronomy 6.5. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart. And with all thy soul and with all thy might. And that same concept is in Deuteronomy 30, verse 20, that thou mayest love the Lord thy God, and that thou mayest obey his voice, and that thou mayest cleave unto him, for he is thy life and the length of thy days, that thou mayest dwell in the land which the Lord swear unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. 
Those are very, very deep verses. Okay, to love the Lord thy God all thine heart, thy soul, and thy might. Those are different things. And maybe someday we'll do a whole study on the architecture of man and how it lines up with the Trinity. Because it's critical. You're creating God's image. So you are created in the image of the Trinity. Okay, so loving thy Lord with everything you've got is critical. So in order to cleave unto God, look what it says in, verse, in Deuteronomy 30, verse 20. That thou mayest cleave unto him. Okay, you cannot cleave to something that you're not within an arm's reach of. You know, you've got to be close to him to cleave to him. And so if you're not within an arm's reach, you can't do that. If you're far enough away from God, you can't do that. Remember James, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So drawing near to God is, is key. To love the Lord, you have to draw near to him so that you can cleave to him. Okay, the closing phrase. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. That's the closing phrase. But then here we have, as the letter closes to Ephesus, the promise to the overcomer. The end of verse 7. To him that overcometh. Again, that's us. Will I eat? Will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God? Access to the tree of life was lost in the fall. Now, you might ask, why would God block access to that? Okay, when Adam and Eve fell, they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So they knew, they knew, they had knowledge that God did not want them to have. Well, they were fallen. In order for them to not be in a fallen state for all eternity, God had to block access to the tree of life. Okay, if you remember in Genesis, he sets a sword, a flaming sword that turns every which way to guard access to the tree. It's a cherubim. And we say the Bible closely, there are ranks of angels, cherubim being one of the highest. They're the ones that surround the throne of God. Satan was the anointed cherub that covereth from Ezekiel. Before he fell, he was the greatest of God's creation. He was the sum of all wisdom. Every precious stone was his covering, according to Ezekiel 28. And so when he fell, okay, it took someone of his type of rank to guard access to the tree, a cherub. So there's a lot going on there that you just miss when you read through that, that little passage in Genesis. But God is intentionally setting up a guardian so that man and Satan cannot have access to that tree, which is the tree of life, to be forever stuck in that fallen state. Okay, but we do know that access to the tree will be restored later in Revelation. We see that later at the end of the book. He will grant access to the tree of life once again. In the millennium, that tree is going to be in the New Jerusalem, in the Jerusalem, in the resurrected state, when we ride back with Jesus, that tree of life will be there with rivers going out, and we have access to it again. And what's amazing, when you read Ezekiel 47, this is the purpose of the tree of life. It, it's our future. We have access to it. Ezekiel 47, 12. And by the river upon the bank thereof, on this side and on that side. So it's going to span the river. Okay, just get, get the picture here. Shall grow all trees for meat, whose leaf shall not fade. Neither shall the fruit thereof be consumed. It shall bring forth new fruit according to his months. Okay, you get a lot of hints out of, out of this in Ezekiel. 
according to those months. So according, there's going to be a calendar still in the millennium. There's going to be seasons. Jesus is going to bring forth fruit according to each month. And the tree brings forth different fruit each month. I, I don't know about you guys, but I've never seen a tree grow an apple, um, a pear, a peach, you know, everything different every month. So there's something very unique about this tree because there are waters they issued out of the sanctuary. That's the sanctuary where Jesus will dwell. It's the new temple, the millennium temple. Ezekiel gives us the whole layout at the close of the book, the layout of that temple. And the fruit thereof shall be for meat and the leaf thereof for medicine. And so the tree of life is once again going to be as God intended it before the fall of man. It'll be for us for meat, for fruit, for medicine, for medicinal purposes, everything as we spend a thousand years with Jesus ruling on earth, starting in Revelation 19. And again, it goes back to the namesake of our church. So that closes uh, the letter to Ephesus. Critical letter. It's, uh, it's, a, it's an amazing letter how God opens those seven letters to the seven churches. His darling left their first love. And so my challenge, our closing challenge for all of us is whatever you are doing in your life, just make sure you're filtering it through what would God have you do? You know, and just think about at any moment now the rapture could happen and you're going to be doing something. You're going to be doing something when Jesus comes to meet us in the clouds and to call us home with the sound of a trumpet. First Thessalonians 4. The dead in Christ will rise first and we which are alive and will remain shall Go up to be caught up to meet him in the air, to forever be with him. So you're going to be doing something. So make sure it's something fruitful for the kingdom, that you have not left your first love. And that's the challenge, especially for us as a new church that's growing, a church that's thriving. Uh, we've got to take the, the exhortation from Jesus serious, too, that we've got to try those that are apostles that, that really are liars and take that to heart. Because Satan would love nothing more than to break up this congregation in its infancy. Okay, just like Jesus when he was born, Herod tries to kill every baby. He tries to kill anything at God's work in its infancy. Same thing. So I'll just close this in a word of prayer. Um, we've got, yeah, yes, Chad. <laughs> we have a question from the audience. Yes, Chad. Mr. Chad, I'm going to take advantage because I don't know how much longer we're going to have Q&A. Oh, okay. You want to take advantage now? Okay. We have some young folks in here that I think would be. Um, could you let us know uh, before Acts when the church, how it even was established, and what were the Jewish people doing before Acts and the church came down? Because I think it's important to know that you know. Yeah. So always here. So the, the church. The relationship when you pay attention to uh, Jesus very. Gentlemen in the back, listen up. That's pretty good. <laughs> Not to call you guys out or anything. Um, you know, the, in the Old Testament, everyone was saved the same way we're saved today. Remember, Abraham was justified by faith. That's how we're justified today. The difference in the relationship was the indwelling Holy Spirit, being a king and priest unto God, and then the, uh, the privilege that we have as the church, which is God literally, seven times in the New Testament, says, you are the temple of God. So the seven times in the New Testament, you are the temple of God. The indwelling Holy Spirit. Because there is no temple now. Right now. That was destroyed in 70 AD. So the Jewish people came to faith the same way we did. We do today. Faith, they're justified by faith. It's just that they didn't have that privilege. 
Now, if you are a Jewish person today that believes in the Messiah and you've, you've cried out to Jesus and you are saved, you are a member of the church, the ecclesia, the body of Christ. Now, Jesus says in the, in the New Testament, remember in John, he says, uh, surely those born of a woman, there is none greater than John, speaking of John the Baptist. Okay, but then he says another statement, but the least in the kingdom is greater than he. And he says, the law and the prophets were until John. And so what he's saying is the close of that Old Testament relationship stopped at John the Baptist. He was the close of it. And our relationship as the bride of Christ is a greater relationship than John the Baptist or anyone before that has or had in their life. And so it, it's very subtle. But when you rightly divide the word of truth, you can figure out that there are different relationships with the Lord all through the Bible. One we'll look at is when the bride of Christ goes home and we see tribulation saints through that seven year tribulation period that they are saved. They have different activities of where they serve the Lord night and day in the temple with palm branches. Whereas we have crowns and are sitting on thrones with Jesus in the throne room of the universe. You know, we have different, there's different relationships. And so when the church age closes, the relationship as a king and priest to God, that closes. That's the close of the church. And it's important to recognize that, which is what the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit means in Romans 11. Um, the fullness, the blindness in part is to come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. That fullness is, is a term for the church. It's a volumetric measure of when that fullness is complete. The father tells the son, go get him and bring him home. And then once again, he works through the entire planet Earth through the nation of Israel. Okay, just like in the Old Testament. And so there's, there's a lot of patterns there. Remember, Jesus said, I must leave so the comforter can come. That's the comforter is the Holy Spirit. So he had to leave. Well, in order for Jesus to come back, the comforter has to leave. You know, it's the, it's the dichotomy of it. The comforter must be taken out, which is us, the indwelling church. Then... Everything happens on earth is crazy. We're going to read about it. It's going to be a very fruitful study, but then Jesus will come back. So uh, with that, I hope you guys enjoyed Ephesus, the letter to the first church. So we've got, okay, is the text for a remind? Is that the, no, oh, that's for the pushback. That's for tithing. Okay, that's for tithing. Okay, so we, we have again, okay. We're not going to talk about tithing a lot at this church, uh, but Matt, yes, Pastor Matt, yes, Chad. I'm not very yeah. smart. That was a lot of big words you used. Can you please help me understand when it says the veil has been broken? Yeah, when Jesus was not with not a lot of big words. Where were the disciples? What were they doing? What had just happened? So after when Jesus was crucified, in other words, we're all equal. Why does that mean we're all, we don't have the traditions, we don't have to be circumcised, we don't have yeah, to be all so the so Jesus came to fulfill every aspect of the law, right? And the veil was torn, when he was crucified, the veil was torn meant open house. You know, come on, come on, I've made the final way, the final appropriation for sin has been met. You know, come in, everyone's welcome. Before that, to be a, a to go into the Holy of Holies, you had to be a high priest. Right, with all these ceremonies and sacrifices, and then you could get into that relationship. But the veil being torn was a symbol for, hey, now it's open house. You all have that relationship to come into the throne room, the Holy of Holies. So 
Um, the, okay, we have a new, just one thing. I'll, I'll just say, I'll reiterate this for everybody that didn't hear a couple weeks ago about tithing. Um, tithing, frankly, we don't care where you do it, just make sure you do it. That's the bottom line. Tithing is a requirement from the Lord. Um, it was established in Genesis with Abraham when he gives tithes to Melchizedek. It's established there. It's reminded all through the Old Testament. Uh, it's reminded again in the New Testament. Uh, Malachi 3 says, bring your tithes and offerings into the storehouse and see if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing on you which you cannot contain. And so it's, a, it's the only place in the Bible where God's challenge challenges you to test him. To see, okay, do you trust me? Do you trust me with 90% of your money that I can do more with it than what you can with 100%? You know, that's the, the whole thing is about trust. And do you trust him? And the blessing may not be monetarily. The blessing may be time. It may be um, peace in your household. Maybe something with your career. Maybe some of your children. I don't know, but God promises a blessing to those who do it. And so we're not... You know, we're not going to pass around an offering plate here at New City Church. We're not going to harp on this every week. Uh, frankly, all that we hope you do is that you tithe. We don't really care where you tithe. Okay, just do it. If you have a ministry that you're passionate about, a church you're passionate about, please give there. If you, if you felt led to give here, if you feel led to give here, please tithe here. Your, your dollars go in to serve the community in a big way. You know, we've got a great outreach program we're starting we're meeting the needs of the community. We're trying to love the community by meeting their needs. So please, um, the new tithing platform is on PushPay. So this is the link. If you text all one word, no spaces, New City Church to 77977, you'll get a link. It's very simple. It's very easy. You'll get a link directly to your phone. You just tap on it. You can set up a recurring gift, you can give a one-time gift, you can do whatever you feel led to do. And then uh, Family Night, just a quick, another quick announcement. Family Night will be Saturday, February 6th, right here at K-Life, 6.30 to 9. Uh, the church is going to buy a bunch of pizzas and some drinks. If you have a favorite dessert you want to bake, right, Nikki? Right, bring that, and we'll all share. So if you want to bring a dessert, please do. And then the Reminder app, it's really the Remind app, I think, right? Or it's, it's to get a remind. Okay, tough to say. Yeah, it's, it's very critical. Tough to say. But the, the remind app, uh, it's our way to push announcements out to the congregation. So if you're not signed up on remind, just text. Okay, you text the app sign DDC6GC. Everyone's going to remember this, I know. Take a, take, a take a screenshot. Take a picture of this. But to 81010. And you'll sign up on Remind, and then we'll push out a weekly announcement just to make sure, hey, we're meeting here at this time, or to remind you of a family fun night, or anything else. If church is canceled due to inclement weather, we had that back in December, we'll send an announcement through that, uh, through the Remind app. So please sign up for that if you haven't. And with that, I will close us in prayer, and we'll get out of here. Most gracious Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much, Lord, for this time together. Thank you for the seven letters to the seven churches. God, we thank you for the promise you've laid in each one of them for us, the application to each one of us, the application that we can take serious here at New City Church. God, we thank you for what you're doing and for graciously opening the floodgates and giving us a place to meet, giving us chairs to sit in, giving us 
good sound and a projector, everything, God, that you have opened up the windows of heaven, we are just so thankful for. God, we do not take it lightly that we, lightly that we can gather here without the threat of persecution in the day of age which we live. God, we take that promise and that privilege serious as we know that most of the body of Christ and most of the world for most of the last 2,000 years did not have that privilege. And there are a lot of our brothers and sisters all over the world right now that don't have that privilege. And so, God, we take it serious and we just want to give you the praise and the glory and the honor and the thanks for letting us meet here without the threat of being arrested or tortured or imprisonment or anything even worse. So, God, we pray safety, a hedge of protection of safety around our brothers and sisters all over the world that are gathering in secret. We pray that your Holy Spirit would meet them there in that place and just dwell with them and let an outpouring come forth and and meet them and let them have a fresh word from you. Lord, like the church at Smyrna, just tell them to hold tightly, hold fast, because they're doing great. And so, God, we thank you again for this body. We thank you for this fellowship and this congregation. And Lord, we just pray that you'd be with us in the days and the weeks ahead, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.